TheYeshiva.net. What does afterlife look like? What is afterlife? That's called in Judaism, Gan Eden. It's surprising, you know, I was, I had a Zoom a few weeks ago with probably the greatest expert, one of the greatest experts in the world today on trauma, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Van der Kolk, he wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's on, it's online. We had an interesting session about trauma in the Jewish community and healing. And he didn't know that Judaism believes in afterlife. <laughs> he, thought, he thought it was a Christian idea. <laughs> It was it was fascinating to me because he's not Jewish, but uh, it's just interesting. And many Jews don't know that Judaism believes in an afterlife. So that's the first thing we want to discuss. It's called Gan Eden, uh, Paradise, Afterlife. It's sometimes called Olam Abba, the world to come. But that's not the world to come that we're talking about. Then there's another component called Olam Haba. Every Jew has a part in Olam Abba. That's also known as the resurrection. The world Olam Hatchia, or Tchia Samesim, resurrection which is again one of the 13 principles of faith, that there's going to be there's the concept of the resurrection of the dead where the souls don't only live in the afterlife spiritually, but that the souls are going to come back. That the bodies are going to be re, recreated or redeveloped uh, from decomposition. They're going to come back and once again become a home, a house for the soul in this world. That's the concept of Olam Haba. And the Mishnah says, every single Jew, every Jew has a portion in Olam Haba, in the world to come. So let's understand the process of how this is discussed in our works, the sages, the scholars, especially in the works of Machshava, the works of Jewish thought, Hashkafa, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, Hasidic works, as, as well as in this discourse that we're focusing on. We all know and this is a foundational idea in Judaism. Not just a foundational idea, it's part of the essence of life from a Jewish perspective. That the soul, the neshama of a person is synonymous with life. A soul never dies because life can't die. <laughs> Something that's alive doesn't die. The soul is life. And when we say the soul is life, we don't mean that the soul is a gas, or the soul is an electron, or the soul is an energy in terms of the term of energy that we use in science, although we use the word energy. But here we're talking about spiritual life. The soul is a derivative of divine life. Or in the words, the famous words of the Kabbalists and of the Tanya, the soul is a chelik eleka mimal. It's a, a portion of God, so to speak, or a fragment of God or a spark of infinity. It's a derivative of the consciousness of oneness, of the consciousness of infinity. So it's essentially alive. The soul is alive. It's also called sometimes the divine breath, nishmas chayim, the breath of life, which is the word neshama, comes from the word neshima, which means breath, which is why breath is so connected to life. And the soul is always, always alive. It's alive before birth, and it's alive after death. What happens with birth and what happens before that with conception and with the development of an embryo that develops God's, God willingly into a fetus that has been born is the relationship of the soul with the body. It's the body that begins to develop with a single cell and then grows over the nine months until it develops astonishingly into a full-fledged fetus that emerges. 
But that is the soul being enclosed and being housed through the body. But prior to birth, the soul is not just alive. The soul is fully alive because it's a divine, it's, the, it's part of divine energy. It's part of the divine consciousness. And that soul is the divine spark that lives and it gives life because it is alive. We say about God, He is life. Life is God. God is life. You know, sometimes I meet people, uh, they tell me, I don't believe in God. <laughs> so I say, okay, you don't believe in God, but I have another question. Do you believe in existence? Of course I believe in existence. I say, do you believe in reality? Of course I believe in reality. Reality is reality. Well, I say, I have news for you. In Judaism, we have no word for God. The word we use for God is reality, existence. The word for God is yud, k, vav, k which is a combination of three words, he was, he is, and he will be. In other words, it's the summation of all of reality, was, is, will be, existence. God is the existence of existence, it's the reality of reality. We all live in reality, we are all part of existence, we are all an aspect of existence. In other words, we are all an aspect of God. The soul is that seat of consciousness that embodies that in the most vivid and authentic way. When a child is conceived, following intimacy, there is conception where the sperm, the seed of life, meets the egg. And ultimately, that great, extraordinary, biological miracle happens and that embryo is created. That's the moment that the soul begins to land. It's like... (laughs) You know, the moment when I was a child, I remember when I went the first, you know, as a child, you go on an airplane and it's so, I still get excited when the plane goes up. But that moment, you know, the plane takes off and then the plane lands. It's like touch. You come in contact with earth. That moment that the soul makes its first real descent into a cell that is alive, that is alive. And that's the soul that ultimately continues to give animation and to vivify the body as it grows. Which is why a fetus is a weir. And not only a weir in the later months of pregnancy, even in the earliest months, even during conception. There's an extraordinary statement by King David. King David says in Psalms 27, My mother and father have abandoned me, and God took me in. And the question is, what does he mean? Why is he saying such bad things about his father and mother? So there are different interpretations, but there's an incredible interpretation in Medrash that's quoted in Rashi and Psalms, that King David actually was talking about the moment of conception. The moment of conception, in many ways, is a very, very traumatic moment for the soul. Because the soul, which is essentially a divine consciousness, a derivative of infinity, is now being condensed and being manifested in a single cell and contained in what will become, God willingly, a body, a whole goof, a whole fetus and a child and a body and a growing up body. That's an extraordinary transformation for the soul. And here in parentheses, I'm going to mention something. There's a lot of talk today about the reasons for the anxiety all of the anxieties that have emerged in so many people's psyches. And, you know, what is it? Is it every child, some, some children have, have wonderful homes. 
Some of you have created wonderful homes, functional homes, loving homes. Where is all this anxiety coming from? But you have to understand that there's very different sources for anxiety. And sometimes there's a trauma that comes from a sensitive soul, an HSP, a highly sensitive person, who's sensitive simply to existence, to the descent of the soul coming into the body, even at a moment of conception, it's a very, very profound and drastic transformation. It's not a small thing. Somebody may not be sensitive to this, but if you have a child who's very deeply spiritually sensitive, the very experience of existence is something that can cause a very, very profound trauma. Because existence is about apparent separateness, not real separateness, but apparent separateness. From infinite oneness, God carves out the ability that we should perceive ourselves as detached, as separate, as other. So King David says, at the moment of conception, I want to see who's babysitting me, who's taking care of me. And you know what Rashi says? King David takes a look. He says he looks at his mother, and she's sleeping, she's tired. He looks at his father. Maybe Tati is babysitting. And Tati is certainly sleeping. In the words of Rashi, after intimacy, this one turns to this side, this one turns to that side, and they go to sleep. And within 10 minutes, they're all sleeping. And the soul is now making a grand entrance into the world. Wow. It's maybe the most important moment of your existence. So King David said at that moment, who was there with me? Who was there to hold my hand? God. God embraced me from the womb. King David says in 22, Psalm 22, in the womb of my mother, you have been there for me. You have been my, my shepherd. You have been my source of, of confidence. God says, I'm with you. King David says in 23, you all know, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I did not become terrified because I knew that you were with me. And that gives me solace and comfort. The soul does go through a very dramatic journey. That journey is often called the valley of the shadow of death. And life takes us on a very, very dramatic and intense journey. Everybody knows in their own lives we experience so many vicissitudes and fluctuations from one extreme to another extreme. Life is not always a Ferris wheel. Sometimes it's a roller coaster. And they have by us in America what they call a super duper looper. I don't know if you ever went to Hershey Park or Disneyland or Six Flags where the roller coaster can flip you upside, flip you upside down six times, seven times. It feels like a jubilee, but it's really just one minute ride. So life is sometimes a roller coaster and the confidence of knowing I'm with you. You're not alone. You're not separate. You're not detached. So the soul is aware of what's happening in the womb. Not only is the soul aware, but as the great mystics say, in a way, the soul in the womb knows much more than what the soul is going to know afterwards. You know why? Because in the womb, just like in heaven, the soul experiences reality. The soul sees and hears and understands not through a physical brain and not through physical eyes and not through physical ears 
and not through the physical nose and not through the physical mouth. The soul experiences reality directly through the instruments of the soul, through the divine instruments. So therefore its experience of reality is an infinite experience. It's far more profound, it's far more deep. It sees much more, it hears much more, it knows much more because it's not experienced through the finite containers of the physical cells and the physical organs and limbs of the human body. In fact, the Talmud says that the soul, the child in the womb of its mother, this is tractate Nida, page 30. The, the child, the fetus, knew his mother learns the whole Torah. The whole Torah. A candle burns on its head and it learns, Malam Dinosa, call a Torah, call and ask your question. Nine months, there's a fetus in the womb and there's a candle burning on its head and it learns the whole Torah. What does that mean? You ever met somebody who could learn the whole Torah in nine months? You haven't met somebody who could learn the whole Torah in nine years. You can't learn the whole Torah in 90 years. In paradise, you have Moses is still learning Torah three and a half thousand years later because Torah is endless. And then the Talmud says, when the child leaves the womb, the angel comes, he gives a little schnell on the mouth and the child forgets everything. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means something very deep. This is what the great Maharal of Prague explained. And the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, and some of the great, the Vilna Gon, and some of the great spiritual masters explain this. Tune in. When the soul, when the body emerges and the fetus is developed, now the soul is still aware, but now it has to use the physical containers of the body to be able to see. It's not the eye that sees. It's the soul that sees through the eye. It's not the ears that hear. It's not the brain that understands or has consciousness. It's the soul that experiences consciousness through the medium of the brain and through the senses and through all of the tools, the 70 trillion cells that function in our body with perfect synchronization and harmony. The 100 billion neurons that are firing up in our brain and keep our system working and our consciousness alive and vibrant. This is all the soul using, working, functioning through all of these. And that's why after death, the body stops functioning. So we say, well, the electricity is not running anymore. The electricity that's causing the heart to pump the blood, that's causing the circulatory system that allows for life to function, stopped. What created that electrical current? And the answer is, it's the soul's presence, it's the soul's life that vivifies and animates the body. Now there's many levels of the soul. In Tanya we know about four levels of the soul. There's the biological soul, the animal soul, the rational soul, and the divine soul. Today in neuroscience, it's unbelievable that the Tanya writes this based on the teaching of Reb Chaim Vital, who lived in the 16th and 17th century. The Tanya lived in the 18th century. Because today in neuroscience, we know that the brain has different dimensions. There's literally different levels, different layers of the brain. We have the reptilian brain, and we have the mammalian brain, and then we have the prefrontal cortex or the prefrontal lobes. And that's basically the biological functioning, the, the survival skills, and emotional, the limbic brain, and then the prefrontal cortex, which is rational, which is scientific, which could think long-term. And then we have the divine, transcendent consciousness called the nefesh elikis, which is like a piece of God inside of us. So as the soul is born, 
it now starts experiencing life through our physical instruments. In the womb of the mother, we learn the whole Torah. What does it mean we learn the whole Torah? It's not that we go through all the information in nine months. It's that in the womb, the soul gets to see the unity of Torah, the organic oneness of Torah, the infinity of Torah, because the whole world is one. It's a reflection of divine oneness. It's a derivative of divine oneness. So the whole Torah, which is the blueprint of the universe, is all one. After we come out, as we start growing up, we look at the world in a fragmented way. Everything becomes divided into categories. We start defining things. We start giving things names. Giving things names is wonderful because it allows us to function. But it's also the disaster because it comes from the limitation of everything has to be articulated in language. Everything now has to be condensed and go through a filter and assumes finite properties. So everything is a name. When your infant in the crib looks at a raisin, you ever throw in a raisin to the crib and your infant could look at that raisin for 30 minutes. How long can you look at a raisin for? How long? How long can you look at a raisin for? Right? A half a second and then right away. Barbara prayed, Mama. An infant, no. There's so much to look at at a raisin. But the moment we give it a name, our interest stops, our curiosity stops, our, inquisitive st- our inquisitiveness stops. Why? Because we, do, we reduce it to a very limited story. We start telling stories. And all of trauma comes from stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. But the soul, pre the body, traces back every reality to the source, which is infinite oneness. So the Maharal says something unbelievable. He says, what does it mean that the angel gives you a little schnell on top of your mouth and you forget the whole Torah? What does that mean? It means that when we're born, we're slowly going to develop the ability to articulate things verbally with our mouth. And when we start talking about things, we lose a little bit of the connection with the totality of oneness because speech is all about limiting things, defining things, telling stories. We speak in different languages. We also think in different languages. It's taking reality and reducing it and limiting it in verbal constructs. And that's where life is transformed. And a relationship with your soul means a relationship with your own infinity. That's where prayer, meditation, spiritual study and learning can help take me back to that inner space of neshama, neshima, that inner breath of God, in which the world is not a fragmented place, but it's a place of oneness. So as we continue to grow up, the soul is as alive as ever, but it processes the world through the physical mediums of the body. And it's easy in life to even forget that I have a soul, and yet so much of our pain, our emptiness comes from our soul. Because our soul is not only real, our soul is not only authentic. Our soul is really the essence of what constitutes the core of I. It's not that (laughs) my body has a soul. It's much deeper than that. It's my soul has a body. Hasidim would not say, I have a body, and my body happens to have a soul inside. No, it's the other way around. I I am a soul. I am a soul. And my soul has a body. My soul is now utilizing the body. That's the meaning of the words of the Talmud in Tainus, page 5, track 10. Yaakov Avinu Loimes. Jacob didn't die. What does that mean, Jacob didn't die? It says in the Torah that Jacob passed away and he was embalmed and he was eulogized and there was a funeral and he was buried and we go visit his gravesite in Hebron and the Maris Machuzmin, he didn't die. So the great spiritual mystics explain 
that what it means he didn't die was, you know, when I take off a suit, I change my jacket or I change my tie or I change my shirt, I don't call it death. Why not? Because it's a garment. It's not me. I'm not my clothes. I'm not my cloak. Hopefully I'm not. You changed your watch. You changed your shirt. You changed your hat. You changed your glasses. It may be, <laughs> it may be time to for a change. For, for Jacob, the body was a garment. It was a cloak. It facilitates the soul, but it's not the soul. And that's why for a great tzaddik, death is understood completely differently. Because what is really death? Death is simply the soul continues to live, but not through the medium of the body. So a soul never dies. The moment of death is the moment that the soul, so to speak, transcends, it ascends, it retreats. It's withdrawn from the manifestation within the instruments of the body. Now, the Tanya writes that after death, the soul is aware much more. And in a way, connected more because it's not, its connection is not limited through the physical tools. Now, for us, it's very sad. There's a lot of grief because I want the contact with a person physically. I remember when my father passed away. I know some of you great rabbis in South Africa were students of mine then. It was 2005. My father passed away in May. He was not very old, at least not in our age. It's not called old. He was 70. And he had diabetes, and he passed away in the hospital in Manhattan. And I was with him that morning. And I didn't think he's going to go. I mean, he was sick, but my father was like a survivor. He always came back. He bounced back. So I didn't think he's going to go. And I left the hospital. I actually had a lecture. I remember I had a big lecture in the early afternoon. So I left the hospital, and I, I went to the lecture. And then my sister called me, and she said, things are not looking good. So I rushed back to the hospital from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and when I came into his room, I came in, it was around 5.20. He passed away three minutes before, 5.17 p.m., 20th of year, Sunday. And I walked in, and I right away understood, you know, I saw the machines, I saw that flat line, and I looked at my father. And my first thought was, There was so much chaos there in the days and weeks before. Doctors running and coming and nursing. And now everything was serene and all the wires were disconnected. Somehow they were doing nothing. That morning my father couldn't eat. He had a trachea, but he was thirsty. So he asked me to put ice in his mouth. But I said, now he's not looking for the ice. But then I looked at my father. He was a very vivacious personality. Some of you remember him. He was a journalist. He was colorful. He was interesting. And I asked myself, where did his personality go? My father was wise. He was a, a Renaissance man. He knew every sea and lake in Russia. He knew geography better than I know Ashrei. He was a very interesting person. He would read 30 newspapers and magazines a week from, from Germany and Japan. He was a very interesting man. A really, really old-time seasoned Yiddish, Yiddish journalist. And he had a lot of personality. He was a conversationalist. He knew the world. He knew people. He knew history. He was a deep soul. And suddenly it was all gone. Like, what happened? I knew my father for so many years. Where did it all go? And then I realized, it just hit me at that spot, that moment. It was all present, but it was just not being manifested through the body. And what was one of the saddest moments in my life became one of the spiritual, most spiritual moments in my life.
It was a very sad moment to say goodbye to my beloved father, but it was also a very spiritual moment because almost in a vivid way I could sense the authenticity of one spiritual presence. And years later, somebody gave me a very powerful metaphor that illustrated it. You know, people talk about death as the end, but I, ask, I have a question. When you unplug the refrigerator from the wall, what happens to the electricity? Does all the electricity die? No. Electricity never dies. What happens to it? It just goes back to its source. The difference between the moment before and the moment after is not if the electricity is dead. It's if the refrigerator is channeling the electricity. When you plug in the refrigerator, the electricity could flow through the refrigerator or flow through uh, the phone or flow through your laptop or flow through your computer or your mic or your vacuum cleaner or your your AC. When we unplug it, electricity doesn't die. Electrons don't die. (laughs) It's just the vessel, the container is not manifesting it. If this is true about electrons and electricity, how much more so is it true about a neshama, a soul, a part of God? Death is, the body is unplugged. The soul is not flowing through it. But the soul is completely alive. There's a beautiful poem that was written by one of the greatest poets in the United States of America, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was born in 1807, he died in 1882. And he has a long poem called A Psalm of Life. It's about a a young person who's considering how difficult and agonizing life and death is. And uh, Wattsworth there has a line, and he says, I'm going to quote it. He says, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust thou returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. So life is real, and that life remains real. (laughs) The grave is not the goal, because dust you are and dust you returneth was not spoken of the soul. It was spoken of the body. So now, when the refrigerator is unplugged, the soul, so to speak, continues to live. Just as I said before birth, after death, the soul continues to live. And this is the concept of Olam Habav Ganeiden. The soul going back into the spiritual reality where it's beyond space. Just like God doesn't exist in space, a soul doesn't exist in space. It's like even an idea. There's no space where a particular idea exists. It's spaceless. It transcends space. So is the soul in heaven or the soul is up there? The soul is, you know, people say the soul goes up, the soul goes down. Up is heaven, down is purgatory. But that's not real because... Physical, ge- physical geography and putting the soul in the right and in the left and up and down simply doesn't make sense. It's like saying an idea is on the second floor and not on the first floor. A physical, physical matter can exist on the second floor, not on the first floor. My computer is upstairs and not downstairs. The couch is downstairs and not upstairs. But a soul is not upstairs, a soul is not downstairs, a soul doesn't live within physical space. So it's everywhere because it doesn't exist in space. Now sometimes the soul has to go through a journey in order to be able to get to that place of Gan Eden. And this is what we call in Judaism cosmic spiritual therapy. It's also known as Gehenim or purgatory or hell. Some people influenced by Dante's furnace understand that purgatory is the place where the soul is burning in a physical flame. 
But of course, souls can't be on fire because souls are not physical entities to burn. You can't put a soul in fire. So this is all, whenever we speak about hell and purgatory as a fire, it's all metaphoric. And probably the best description was given by the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov said that basically, when I come to heaven and I really face myself and I learn who I am, for some people it's paradise, but for some people it's hell because in heaven, after death, and I'm using heaven here as a metaphor, I really get to see who I am, what my calling was, what my potential was, and how much did I live out my potential. For some people, that's paradise. (laughs) And for some people, there's a lot of inner shame and I have to work through things. Remember, sometimes I'm at a wedding and I'm completely not dressed for the wedding. You know, I went, say, to... uh, I (laughs) I went to clean my snow or to clean up the mud in front of my house, and I'm completely dirty, and I show up at the wedding, and I'm looking at all of the guests dressed beautifully, and I just feel shame, I feel uncomfortable. Why? Because it's like, am I in the wrong place? Or maybe I didn't prepare myself to come into the right place. Remember, when the soul comes back, and the soul is liberated from the constraints of the body, its pure holiness emerges. Its pure godliness emerges. And sometimes there's a deep shame, like... I don't really fit in with the, with the other souls. Some souls, they die and they just go right back to where they were because they always retain that purity. Because every person is sacred. Every person is holy. Every person is divine. I can make believe I'm not. And I could stain myself. And that's when I need the spiritual therapy called Gehenim in order to spit out things from my system, in order to extricate my lies and my dirt and my filth. And even if it was unintentional, but these are spiritual wounds that I need to get rid of. And it's painful, but it's not bad. It's painful, but it's not bad. The word in Tanakh for hell is Sha'oil, the abyss. Va'atziya Sha'oil Hineka. What does Sha'oil mean? Sha'oil literally means the deep abyss. Abyss. But the great masters say something much deeper. The word Sha'oil is the same letters like the word Sha'ul, which means borrowed. Borrowed. When a person lives a borrowed life, that's called hell. When I'm not living my life, what do they say? We're all born originals, but so many of us die as copies. Don't live somebody else's life because that's taken already. And who's going to live your life? A life of purgatory is a life in which I do not appreciate my own infinite dignity. My life is borrowed. I'm busy mimicking you. I'm busy borrowing. (laughs) I'm looking at you how to live, and then I live based on your expectations. I'm never in touch with my own music, my own rhythm. Love, what is love? Love is learning the song in another person's heart and singing it to them when they might have forgotten it. We often forget our song. We forget our niggin. Every soul has a unique niggin. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, every single creature sings. Every creature sings. Every soul has a song. I forget my song. I forget my song and my body is trying to be very nice. So my body tells the soul, oh, you have anxiety? Let's eat another cupcake. <laughs> let's eat another Danish. Let's go binge. Let's go gamble. Let's go drink. Let's go check out, uh, check out uh, websites. Let's go use some substances. But the soul really needs its music. So after passing, the soul sometimes has to go through a process, a healthy process of spiritual divine therapy to be able to extricate from its system everything that may have everything that may have tarn everything that may have uh, tarnished it and then the soul goes into ganeden as the great masters teach us 
a soul will not be in purgatory for more than 12 months. After 12 months, it goes back to its pristine divine place where it always was as a piece of God. That is a very brief description of the soul's journey before birth, through life, and after life. And that's why it's so important to spend time with your soul, to be aware of your soul, to be sensitive to your soul. There's a wonderful, wonderful metaphor that captures this. They say that once upon a time there was a king and he had four wives. The first wife, he pampered. He gave her everything she wanted. He really loved her and he bought her diamonds and gold and elegant clothing. That was the first wife. The second wife, he was very, very proud of and he showed her off to everybody. You know, she was the pride. He would boast through her because of her her beauty and her appeal and her her charm and her charisma. And then there was a third wife. He didn't cherish her so much. He certainly didn't pamper her. He didn't show her off. But he knew how wise she was. And he always consulted her. She gave him feedback. He would talk to her. He would rely on her. And then the... And then there was the fourth wife. And the fourth wife, he completely neglected. He didn't have time for her. He didn't have interest in her. Anyway, the king got older and it was time to face his own mortality. He was seriously ill and he was on his deathbed. And he was afraid to venture into afterlife alone. So he asked his his first wife, who he cherished and he pampered so much, He said, would you die with me? Could you accompany me to the afterlife? And she looked at him and she said, sorry, (laughs) no, 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 I'm not coming with you. And she walked away. So he turns to his second wife, the one he's so proud of, and he shows her off to everybody throughout his life. And he says, would you accompany me in death to the afterlife? And she says, I like my life too much. I will not go with you. In fact, after your death, I'm going to marry somebody else so he could show me off. I'm not going to stay stuck with you in a grave. So he goes to the third wife. She was always there for him. She gave him advice. She gave him sanity. She gave him wisdom. And he says, would you come with me into the afterlife? And she says, I'm sorry. This time I can't help you. This you're going to have to do alone. I will arrange your funeral I will be there for the funeral. I will take you all the way to the grave, but then I have to go back. And then there's a voice heard from the fourth wife. And she said, I will go with you. I will follow you wherever you go, even into the afterlife. And of course, this is a metaphor. Who are these four wives? We all have them. My first wife is my body. I love my body. You should love your body. You cherish your body. You decorate your body with nice clothes. You take care of your body. You give it nice jewelry. But at the end, it can't follow you into the afterlife. Then you have your second wife. It's your possessions. We spend time gathering possessions. My car and my house and my jewelry and my private yachts and my money and my plane and everything. In the end... They can't follow you into the afterlife. It's going to be given to other people and be divided. It's going to remarry and other people will show it off. The third wife is friends and family. You trust them. You need them. 
They give you feedback. They can take you to the cemetery, not for them more. Not further. The fourth wife is your soul, your neshama. That's the only thing that follows me. It's me. It's me. It's my divinity. Don't neglect it. You never, ever neglect your soul. But now Judaism takes us a step deeper and says, here is the fascinating thing. The soul is not fully content in heaven. The soul misses the time here. And that's why it's painful for a soul to die, to leave. It's not just painful for us. It's painful for a soul also. Why? Because the objective of all the worlds, the objective of all creation, as the Tanya explains from the Medrash Tanchuma, Parshas Nosin Isava, Kadesh Baruch The ultimate objective of existence was planet Earth. That God wanted that we transform planet Earth into an abode for divinity. God wants to live in our physical hearts, in our physical brains, in our physical bodies. He wants our homes and our physical planet to become the place where Hashem ultimately lives so that there is the deepest relationship between God and us here in this world. So the soul wants to come back. The soul loves this. The soul cherishes the opportunity in this world. Only in this world can we serve God. In heaven, God serves us. In heaven, God rewards us. In heaven, God is at our service. It's here in this world that we can serve God. It's here in this world that we can fulfill God's purpose. So as nice as it is to retire and enjoy bliss, the great spiritual Hasidic masters, especially the teachings of the Alter Rebbe, of the Balatanya, and his successors all the way to the Rebbe, emphasize that there's something even deeper. And what's deeper? What's deeper is the ultimate destiny, which is oneness in the physical world. That the pure God in His pure infinity says, I want to be with you. And not just with you in your soul. I want to be with you in the body. I want to be with you on earth. I want to live in your physical home, in your physical space. So the soul has this longing and yearning to come back. And that's why the ultimate destination in Judaism, as the Ramban, my, my, there was a big argument between two of the greatest Jewish philosophers, Nachmanides and Maimonides. Maimonides said, yes, there's going to be resurrection of the dead, and the souls will come back one day, but the ultimate purpose is to go back to heaven. But Nachmanides and all the Kabbalists said, no, paradise is extraordinary, but the ultimate destiny is in this world, the resurrection of the dead. And what happens then? The soul never died, but the body was buried and decomposed. And one of the reasons we believe in burial, not in cremation, is because what happens when you bury something? All of its elements, all of its dimensions get broken up and decompose and become part of earth. They don't disappear, they just morph into other entities. That's why the fossils of animals, every animal that dies, and it decomposes, it becomes part of the nutrients of earth that then go into new animals that are maybe eaten by other animals, or die and become part of the earth. So there's a process of metamorphosis. So when a body is buried, it becomes part of earth. It's not like when you burn it. And then, by the resurrection, the body comes back. The composition happens, and the soul could now be manifested again in the body, I should say. Even those people who were burnt, you had the six million Jews. 
The same God who can bring back the body from burial can bring back the body in other methods as well. But when we have a choice, the mitzvah is to bury the body because when we bury the body, it's not just the end, it's the beginning. It's like planting a seed. A burial is like taking a seed and planting. You're not destroying the seed. You're allowing the seed to decompose in the earth and then come back as a tree. When we bury the body after death, it's the beginning of Tchiyas HaMesim of the resurrection. Why is it so important to come back to this world? Because it's in this world where all of the mitzvahs happened. And because it's in this world where all of the mitzvahs happened, because a soul can't do mitzvahs. The mitzvahs can happen through the body because most of the mitzvahs are physical actions. A soul can't give charity. A soul can't give a hug to a broken person. A soul can't wrap tefillin. A soul can't put on a talus. A soul can't eat matzah. A soul can't blow the shofar. A soul can't light a candle. A soul can't even daven with a mouth or learn with my physical brain or run with my legs to do a mitzvah or extend my arm to do another person a favor, to give them a loan or to help them with business advice or emotional advice. So it's the body that facilitates all of the mitzvahs. So the soul in heaven is just one stage of the journey. But the ultimate journey is as the soul comes back down here to earth. That's the world to come. And every single Jew, because mitzvahs relate to every Jew. Torah, learning, is a pursuit that's more connected to the mind and to spiritual consciousness. And here there are endless levels. Everybody understands Torah differently. In fact, some people learn Torah day and night, and some people fulfill the mitzvah of learning Torah only a few minutes during the day. And that's fine if they don't have more time. They may have to go to work. There's so many different levels. But mitzvahs, mitzvahs are the same. Moses puts on the same tefillin that I put on, that you put on. We shake the same lulav. We eat the same matzah. When it comes to mitzvahs, all Jews are equal. It's that essential relationship that transcends differences and that comes through the body. And that's why the ultimate world, Olam Haba, call Yisrael Yashem Chaylik Olam Haba. Every single Jew, every single Jew, has a portion in Olam Haba. Just like every single Jew is connected to all the mitzvahs. On the contrary, it's only in this world that the soul can do those mitzvahs and therefore the soul wants to come back for that journey together with the body. Okay, so very briefly, this is a a very important question. So let me first address children. Every single soul is eternal. Sometimes a soul comes back Not the first time. It comes back as a Gilgal, as a reincarnation. Most of us have been here before. (laughs) It's just the soul comes into different bodies. There's different reasons for it. Sometimes the soul didn't complete its mission, so it has to come back again. Sometimes the soul didn't achieve everything it could have achieved, so it comes back again. Sometimes the soul has something so powerful to give, so it comes in again to another body to be able to give it. For example, Moses' soul, the Kabbalists say, was reincarnated a few times. Rabbi Akiva's soul, some of the greatest, there's a whole sefer called Sefer HaGilgulim, a book of reincarnations that discusses most, many of the personalities in Tanakh and in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, whose souls they were reincarnations of. So that's number one. A child's soul is also that divine soul and that soul is also eternal. And when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, every single soul comes back, including a child's soul. Now you'll ask, what's the purpose of such a short life? That, these are things that are beyond us. These are the mysteries of life that are beyond us. We don't know why a person is born, and we don't know why a person passes away. The same mystery of death is really the mystery of birth. 
Why did this soul come into this world at this time? What was the reason? We don't know. We take it for granted. So we don't really don't understand the exact journey of every single soul. It's really beyond the comprehension of most of us. It says in Kabbalah that Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who lived in the 16th century in Svas, when he could look at somebody, he could right away see who he was a reincarnation of because he didn't see the body didn't eclipse the soul. You know, some people, they have microscopic spiritual eyes, and so they look at a person, it's like laser technology, you know? That Rizal could see right into your soul, and he could see things that other people didn't see. But every child, no matter who, no matter what age they passed away, that soul is divine and sacred, and it completes its mission, and it comes back in the right time. In terms of Karis, two very important points. The Alter Rebbe, right, the, the Balatanya Rebbe Shnei Zalman writes in the Kutit Torah in a discourse of Rosh Hashanah that whenever the Torah speaks about Karis, cutting off of the soul, it's only referring to the part of the soul that's known as Yaakov, not to the part of the soul that's known as Yisrael, which means there's two parts of the soul. So the part of the soul that goes through a metamorphosis and a process of condensing itself and contracting itself to the point that it could come into a body. And that dimension can be cut off. But there's another element of the soul that is one with Hashem, Echad Yachid Meyuchat, and that could never get cut off, never, because it is divine. You can't tarnish it, you can't destroy it. It's indestructible. It's something that cannot even be contaminated because it's like Hashem Himself. It's like one with Hashem Himself. That's one thing. The second thing is many of the great mystics discuss that even the souls that get cut off, and even those souls that it says Einlem Chelik Loylam Haba. Later in the Mishnah, it says that some souls don't have a part in the world to come. The Talmud says, If you go to a deeper level, they said they also have a part in the world to come. Because ultimately what it means is that some souls may not come back to the body that they inhabited. That they will not come back to. But every soul, even the soul that's cut off, the great mystics say, after a long spiritual journey of cleansing, every single soul, of every Jew will have a tikkun, will have a repair. This is clearly stated in the works of the Arizal and Rabbi Deresh uh, Chachma, uh, Rabbi Divi Dach, and the Shalor Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz. Beautiful question, beautiful question. If everybody learns the Torah in the womb, why do people go through life and they just reject any remnant of Judaism? So the truth is like this. Somebody once said, and I think it's a very true statement, somebody once said, there's no such a thing as a Jewish atheist. Even Jewish atheists deny God with religious fervor, which means there's a certain quality to Jewish atheism that they're religious. Even their denial of God is very, very religious. My point is that sometimes people's connection to Torah is manifested in different ways. Sometimes it's manifested in a positive way, and sometimes it's manifested in a negative way. It's like with your mother. You know, you could hate your mother, you could love your mother, you can't ignore your mother. Elie Wiesel once said, Jews know how to love God or despise God. They don't know how to ignore God. Because when you're very connected to something, either you have a positive relationship with it or you have a negative relationship, but it triggers you. The reason that Judaism triggers Jews and Torah triggers Jews in one way or another is because it's part of my song. The challenge is as follows. The challenge is to be able to identify what you're looking for. Every Jewish soul is connected to Torah. Torah is ultimately the... The music for the soul. It's the music. The soul recognizes the music. It's like uh, I once said in a lecture that Jews without Torah are like little Mozarts without pianos. If Mozart would have grown up in a house without a piano, 
what would have happened to his genius. It would have been expressed in very interesting ways, maybe crazy ways. Thank God Mozart had a piano, so his genius was manifested through the piano. Every Jew is a little Mozart. Every Jew has a great soul, and the soul has revolutionary powers to change the world. But we need a piano. Torah is the piano of the Jewish soul. It allows our endless creativity to be harnessed in a productive way. When a Jew doesn't have that piano, the Torah comes out in different ways. <laughs> you know, that the Karl Marxes of the world <laughs> and the Sigmund, Freud, the Sigmund Freuds of the world. They're revolutionaries, revolutionary spirits. But sometimes the energy is harnessed in a different way. So you will always see a remnant of the Torah. But sometimes, tragically, I don't identify the nigan, the song. In today's generation especially, we see it. When you present Torah in a way that is not dogmatic and is not tribal and is not divisive, you'll see that every soul is touched by it because they know it from the womb of the mother. It's like a song that you might have forgotten, but it still speaks to a very, very deep place in your soul. And even the anger that we see is coming because of a connection. Excellent, excellent question. And the answer is, of course, in fact, I should just say that one of the great Kabbalists, Rabbi Meir ben Gabbai, he was a 15th century great mystic. He wrote a book called Avodah HaKodesh. He says the resurrection of the dead is not only Jews. It's also the pious Gentiles of the world, Hasidei Umasailam. Because we all know what Maimonides writes, that pious Gentiles, Gentiles who are good people, who lived moral lives, also have a part in Olam Haba. They also have an afterlife. And he says that includes the world of Tchiyas HaMesim, of resurrection. That's what he writes. And I saw it myself, that the pious ones from the Gentiles will experience this. That's number one. Number two, more on a general note, every single person is carved in the image of God. As we say in the ethics of the fathers, Chaviv Adam every single person embodies and manifests the light of God. I once heard from a Jew, he already passed away. His name was Professor Jacob Chanoka. He was a Harvard graduate. He was an expert on solar energy. And he told me that he once brought a very large group of secular Jewish students to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1960, March 1960. And he said that one of the students, at the end of the talk, they asked the Rebbe question. So one of the students said that on Shabbos, Professor Chanoka told us that Gentiles don't have a soul. Is that true? And the Rebbe said, no, it's not true. They do have a soul. And Hanukkah told me he was in the room and he felt so embarrassed. The Rebbe says, of course they have a soul. They just have a different type of soul. Every single creation, not only people, every single creation constitutes is basically a summation of divine energy. It says in Tanya, if we had microscopic eyes, when we would look at matter, we wouldn't see physical matter. We would see the divine energy that flows through the matter. Just like we know in science today, when you use a microscope, you don't just see lifeless matter. You see a whole dynamic universe of atoms moving around in perfect harmony. On a deeper level, we would see divine energy. So that's even in matter. Never mind living organisms. Never mind human beings carved in the image of God. Every person has a soul that is God's light and God's purpose and God's intent in creating that person. When we speak about the Jewish soul, it's not that other people don't have souls. Everyone has a soul. It's a different type of soul. It's a soul with a certain sensitivity. Just like you have different families, just like you have different tribes, different nations. And every person constitutes their unique. Every person has a purpose. And every person is an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. And when Mashiach comes, 
the ultimate truth of reality will emerge, the truth of the Jew and the truth of the non-Jew, the truth of every nation and every tribe and every philosophy and every culture and every creature. As the prophet says in Isaiah, that every creature will see that the will be able to perceive that every one of us is a frequency of God's infinite light and plays their unique role in the symphony of creation. The role of the Jew then and now continues to be those who are the ambassadors to teach every person that they're chosen. Jews were chosen to teach every person that he or she was chosen in their own unique way. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.